Well, good morning. How's everyone doing? I'm hoping that uh, there we there we go. Hello. I'm hoping that um, I don't have the same uh, same issues this morning. Um, I'd like to say that I'm happy to see so many people who I don't know. I don't know if that's my own fault or if some of you are actually new. But um, welcome to everybody. Welcome to everyone watching on the uh, live stream. Um, it's great to have all of you with us this morning. Well, as um, Bernadette said, we'll be in our second week of uh, our series on the Psalms. And I got to be honest, I'm actually really, I've looked forward to this for the last couple of weeks. The Psalms have been a very grounding place for me over the last couple of months. And to be able to sit with them and try to extract what they've meant to me and consolidate what they've meant to me for the purpose of teaching has just it's actually been really enjoyable. So I'm excited to be with you guys this morning. I've shared with a couple of you, I'm sure, that I found myself in a really turbulent time with my walk with Jesus over the last couple of months. Um, many of my previously unexamined assumptions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus have been challenged, and I thought I had a pretty decent and okay idea of what I should be doing as a follower of Jesus, and I found that really at the heart of things, I was off base. So a psalm that's been reorienting me over the past couple of months has been Psalm 5. It's fundamentally changed me in some significant ways, and it's still doing that work. So I'd like to share that with you with the understanding that I'm still a student learning from this particular psalm myself. But I believe that God teaches us things so that we can share them with the people we love. So, as we look at Psalm 5 this morning, I'd like to examine some of the patterns that we see in the psalm that are echoed by Scripture, and then we'll examine some of the principles that follow, and then we'll see some practical ways that we can apply those truths to our lives. Principle, well, pattern, principle, practice, that will be our rhythm this morning as we engage with the psalm. So, let's pray before we open up the Word this morning. Well, Father God, we thank you for days, even hot days, and we thank you that we can come together this morning to praise and worship and learn from you. Lord, I pray that my words would be your words and anything that is mine would get cut out by Mike Static or anything like that. So, Lord, I thank you for our time to be here this morning, and I thank you that you uh, have loved us so much and so greatly and so steadfastly. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to read the first two verses of the psalm this morning. We're, gonna, we're not going to read the whole portion of the psalm. We're just going to read the, pe the uh, verses as we go along here. So I'm going to start with Psalm 5, verses 1 and 2. If you have a Bible with with you this morning, please turn. If you don't, there should be one in the pew in front of you, and I'll also have it on the screen behind me here. Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, for to you do I pray. The first pattern that we can see from these first couple of verses in this psalm is that prayer is a diverse, dynamic action. 
This psalm is a prayer and is offered to God by King David. And at the outset, he uses three distinct words to give shape to the content of his prayer. First, David pleads with God to hear his words. Uh, these are things he can wrap his mind around, things that he can understand, things he can give language to. Now, he pleads that God would hear these things. Second, he asks God to consider his groanings. Now, in many ways, groanings are opposite to words. They're things you don't understand, things you can't wrap your mind around. They're lost in the fog of life, and they're just not clear. But anyway, David asks God to hear and consider these things as well. And then thirdly, David says, Lord, hear the sound of my cry. A cry usually doesn't suffer from lack of clarity. Usually, you understand things too well when you're offering cries to God. You, there are no words that can really express our deepest grief. So instead, here David pleads with God to hear his cries instead. Now, it's easy for us to build up a picture of what we think prayer should be. We all have a stereotypical picture of what it might look like to pray, right? We get on our knees, we close our eyes, fold our hands, and then we say words in our head. At least that's the picture I've had for a majority of my life. But to limit prayer to that small box is so unhelpful. We can certainly draw on great examples of people who have prayed like that in the past, but it needs to be something. Our prayer life needs to be something that matches our personality and our seasons in life. Our prayer is, or at least it should be, the most personal expression of our inner life to God. And we can take advice, like I've said, from great women and great men of prayer, and we can try some different systems and some different methods, but there's no one right way to pray. And if the pattern is that prayer is a diverse, dynamic action, it doesn't need to look the same all the time. The principle is that when we pray, we can pray with whatever we have in the moment, whatever's available to us at the time that we're praying. Again, prayer is an extension of who we are, an overflow of our heart. Thus, it will change over the course of your life, and that's okay. You're always changing, growing, and being shaped in some way or another. So bring what you have. God doesn't want you to clean it up or process it, understand it, fix it, or put it in a box and adhere it to some specific system before you bring it to him. Prayer is not a performance review. You don't need to be perfect. You just need to be there. And there's great hope in this for those of us who struggle in our prayer life, including myself, more often than not. And it's this. What you can't bring to prayer will be supplemented by the Holy Spirit. The action of prayer is one of the best ways that we can let God's strength be seen in our weakness. We don't need to do it all. God will pick up our slack as long as we come to him ready and willing. This is made clear in passages like Romans 8, 26, where Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. A concrete, a concrete way to put this truth into practice 
is to diversify your prayer portfolio. And that's probably the most corporate executive thing I've ever said, but I think it's helpful. It's a helpful frame because if we're changing throughout our lives and our prayer is a natural extension of who we are, then it's helpful to know what tools, methods, and approaches can help us turn our hearts to prayer. Again, it's not about a system. It's about understanding who you are and then redirecting your heart to God wherever you find yourself in life. We can use different mediums for our prayer. Like I said, talking in our head can be helpful, but sometimes we process better outside of our heads. Journaling can be prayer. And this has been super freeing for me to know because I process better on paper. I get stuck in circles inside my head, so to be able to journal before the face of God and pray through my journaling words, that has been hugely helpful for me in my walk with Jesus. My wife particularly finds helpful the editing process of her prayers. She'll write down a prayer, and then she'll start to edit that prayer. She'll pray through it and say, God, show me where I'm off base. Show me what I need to change. And as she edits, she asks God to change her, hearts and change her heart in that way. Something really beautiful in that. Speaking out loud can also be super helpful. Some people might maybe go on a walk, be by yourself when you do it, because people might look at you funny, but literally talking to God can help us too. Sometimes some of us process verbally and we'll be able to understand and hear things from God that we just can't otherwise. If you don't have any words, <clears throat> reading and echoing a psalm back to God is a great way to pray. Read God's words back to him and pray through them. Submit yourself to the language of the psalm and let that form the body of your prayer. Different postures are also good, on your knees, on your face, or like I said, on a walk. C.S. Lewis had a really helpful quote in the Screwtape Letters, and for those of you who don't know, it's a collection of fictitious letters that a senior demon writes to a uh, lower trainee demon, and he's trying to teach him how to tempt human beings. And in that, he says, at the very least, they can be persuaded that the bodily position makes no difference to their prayers. For they constantly forget what you must always remember, that they are animals and that whatever their bodies do affects their souls. We're creatures created with a body. God intends for us to use it in prayer. One lesson I've learned from this idea is you should never pray in bed. I've convinced myself probably hundreds of times at this point that I can just say a prayer in bed laying down before I get up or before I go to sleep and it will be fine and it's never, ever worked. Maybe, you are, maybe you're better than me in this, but best to maybe avoid it. When all else fails and you have nothing else to give in prayer, come before the throne of grace anyway. Our words are not always required for us to be praying. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says this, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. We're uncomfortable with silence. And we feel the need sometimes to fill it with our own words, but in reality, sometimes we just need to shut up. Sometimes we have to listen to God and let the Holy Spirit bear our prayers unspoken to him. 
Let's get back to the psalm. We're going to read verse 3. We're going to see some more principal patterns and practices that the psalm has for us this morning. Verse 3 says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. The pattern here is pretty simple. Sacrifices need to be made to spend time with God. And we see here David's rising early. He's preparing the sacrifice. He's going to the tabernacle, and they're offering the sacrifice, and likewise offering his prayer. This takes time, energy, effort, and we see the same practice in the Gospels with Jesus. Jesus often stays up late into the night and rises early to seek solitude and pray to his Father. In Luke, it says that this was his custom or his habit. He did this all the time, and it often cost him time and energy in a particularly busy life. And it's foolish for us to think that it's not going to require some sort of sacrifice on our part to spend time with our Father, because if Jesus needs to do it, we definitely do. If time with God is so important, as was modeled by Jesus in his life and ministry, then the principle that flows out of that is that our relationship with God is the most important relationship that we have. Thus, it needs to take priority. We live in a hectic age, and it's easy to pop from task to task. Goodness, you can spend all day on your phone and not even notice. You can spend hours and just goes away. But Jesus calls us to stop living like that, stop all that, and spend some real quality, focused time with the Father. How would you feel, and I'm sure if you've talked to me, you've had this experience, how would you feel if you're talking to someone and the only thing they can do is get, think about what they're going to say next? What's the next point they're going to bring up? You know, I do this all the time, and I'm sorry to anyone who I've done it to. But it's kind of discouraging. You're like, I'm trying to have a conversation with you. I want to be heard, but you're not listening to me. Or another example, someone's sitting on their phone doing whatever they are doing, scrolling, swiping on something. You can just tell that they're not giving you your attention. They're not focused on you in that moment. And any relationship, any relationship needs focused attention and time with the beloved to grow. It's no different with God. So in practice, we must remove all of the barriers that we find in our lives to our time with God. Do what you need to do to make time for it. It will be convenient, inconvenient. It will be a sacrifice, and it will be worth it. You may sacrifice sleep, energy, or any number of other activities or hobbies that you find extremely valuable. The point of fasting, for example, is that we give up eating to spend time with God. We take that half hour where we would eat lunch or breakfast and instead spend that time with God. It will be a sacrifice. Kill your phone. I mean, I really mean this. Kill your phone. It's probably the most likely barrier to a focused and genuine time with God. For me, I've had to remove entire apps. Like I've had to disable YouTube on my phone. I've had to disable Google Chrome on my phone because I know that I just can't pray when those things exist because I get sucked into them so easily. 
Satan will do everything in his power to keep you from personal devotional time with God. It's one of his primary goals. In this fact, though, in doing this, he's really showing his hand a little bit. He's showing his strategy because if he's spending so much time and effort to keep you from this, he must know it's one of the most important things you can do. So do what you need to do to get alone with God daily, frequently. Let's come back to the psalm. And as we come back, we'll realize David's obviously offering a prayer, as we've talked about, but he hasn't really yet said what the prayer is about. He said, God, hear my prayer. God, know my prayer. Recognize it. But we don't know what he's praying for yet. So let's read on a little bit, verses 4 through 6, and see what he's praying about. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. David brings this prayer before the Lord, and then he comes in with this for statement in verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Instead of outrightly saying what he's praying for right now, he's instead talking about why the prayer itself is necessary. Here's an example of this. If I was praying and I said, Father, if you don't provide in a big way soon, we will be in big financial trouble. What am I praying for in that instance? Money, right? But I'm fearful of the outcome of having no money. I'm fearful of financial ruin. So I'm praying against that outcome, but I'm really I'm praying for more money, right? So David here is asking God to intervene here to some to avoid some particular outcome. And what is that outcome that David's trying to avoid? It's wickedness. Particularly, it's wickedness which results in a distant relationship with God. A relationship that we've already acknowledged is the most important relationship we have. This is what we call the holiness of God, this attribute of God that separates him from any wickedness and filthiness. The principle that David understands here is that relationship and righteousness are dependent on one another. We can't be in relationship with God if we are filled with wickedness, and the inverse must be true. The righteous will be near and brought near to God. So what's the problem? David's wicked. We know it. If we read the history of David that's given to us in the Bible, if we read his story, we see that he's capable of every single type of wickedness that he's explaining here. He knows what it's like to be far from God. He knows that he's capable of this. So he says, Lord, don't make me... Well, Lord's not making me like this. Keep me from being like this. Make me better Make me so that I can be near you. Don't allow me to fall prey to myself. I don't want to be like those people. I want to be close to you. And this is a paradox that lives in the smack dab of the smack dab in the middle of the Christian life. We hear it in Paul's words in Romans 7:15 through 20, where he says, For 
I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. We want to be righteous, the vast majority of us. Yet it's daily proven to us that we cannot do that on our own, left to our own devices. And the problem is the one who can help us is the one that we're driving away with our sin. You see the problem, the very things that we do that isolate us from God are the proof that we need him desperately. We need God to draw near to us and all the time we're pushing him away. Let me take this just a step further. I believe that scripture is clear. The primary way we are changed, made more righteous, is by beholding God in his righteousness. A very illuminating verse here is 2 Corinthians 3.18 where it says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit, who is the spirit. We use the word sanctification to describe this process. We become more holy, more righteous as we behold God, as the Spirit reveals Him to us. So it becomes extremely important that we behold God and allow that revelation just into His image. That's why the most practical thing we can do is to pray for our own sanctification through the beholding of God. Essentially asking God to show us what he looks like so that he can make us look like that. The primary way we see God revealed, the best way to jumpstart this process, is by reading his word, the scriptures. This is why we need to be in scripture. It's not to check off some, I'm a good Christian checklist. It's so that we can have God revealed to us, we can see who he is, and we can be changed by that. Bible reading plans are a huge help. Tried and true throughout the centuries, but if you're anything like me, I want to provide a caution. And if you are anything like me, God help you. We can get a grand plan in our head. We can get some perfect system like reading the Bible in a month or reading five chapters from three different books every day. And we set these huge goals for ourselves. And day three, we fail. And we go, well, what's the point? I can't do it. Why is it so hard? I've talked with a lot of people and their hearts in the same place as mine. The primary emotion that we get when we think about our Bible reading is discouragement. Because we set up some impossible goals, some impossible ex expectations, some legalistic system, and then when we fail, guilt, shame, the whole lot of it. So let me provide you with some encouragement this morning if you find yourself here. God's perfectly happy just for you to stay in one verse, one chapter for a day, for a month, for a week, for a year. It's not reading for the sake of reading. It is reading for the purpose of seeing God and being changed. Now, 
Certainly there will be times, many times, where we have it in us to have these more verbose reading plans, and it definitely does us good, and God will bless any investment you make there. But it's not going to be all the time. It's just unrealistic. Don't be a Pharisee when it comes to your devotional time with God. The same God that chose to reveal his glory in the lilies can do abundantly more than we can ask or think with one verse. If we come to it with the desire to see him, learn from him, and grow in him. I have one more point this morning. Originally I had three more points, but sitting out in the hot sun preparing a sermon yesterday, I decided against it, so you're welcome. This is going to be verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 5. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down before your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make way your straight. Make your way straight before me. Hebrew poetry, like the Psalms, often are constructed in what's called a chiasm. It essentially means that the most important points in the middle and then the entire psalm is structured around the middle. The center of this psalm is also the center of the Christian life. Our Father in his steadfast love sees us fidgeting and thrashing and pushing him away. And what does he do? He just he hugs us so tight. He holds us. It's one of those hugs that you know pretty instantly that's going to be a lot longer than you thought it was going to be. After like five seconds, you're like, okay, this is going on way too long. But then you start to melt into it over time, and you're like, okay, this, this actually isn't that bad. God's love meets us more than halfway. It's perhaps best illustrated by Jesus in his parable of the prodigal son. The son, despising his father, took his inheritance and ran off. He spent it on all sorts of things that he shouldn't have and found himself in the dirt. And when he comes to his senses, he goes back to his father's house. The father, watching, waiting for him, saw him from a long way off. As soon as he saw him, he ran to him. And he embraced a son who was cruel and hateful towards him, and he restored him, and he blessed him. This love is best displayed, best defined at the cross. At the cross, Jesus solved this relationship righteousness problem. Jesus, by his sacrifice, brings us into the Father's presence, into his house. How does he do that? In his love, the Father sent Jesus to die for our sins. And he forgave us. Now we can be in relationship with God because in Christ we are righteous. We're seen as righteous by the Father because when he looks at us, he sees Jesus. And that relationship that we can now have with the Father begins to change us. We can only enter into that process with Jesus as our high priest and our sacrifice. Now, there's a song that I really, really like. It's um, by the Gaithers, Bill, written by Bill Gaither. I don't know 
if any of you know the Gaithers, I grew up with them. They were always playing in my house. Grandma, mom, everyone loved them. And it's, uh, I think the title's actually Sinner Saved by Grace. But the chorus starts out, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, and it goes on from there. And by all accounts, it's a beautiful song, and by all measures, it's a true telling of the gospel. But over time, I've come to disagree with the wording a bit. I wish Bill would have wrote, I'm saying Bill like I know the guy. I, I wish Bill would have wrote, I was a sinner. Because in Jesus, your primary identity is no longer a sinner. It's a child of God. You have Jesus' righteousness. You have a relationship with the Father. And that's something that a sinner could never say. You are righteous because of Jesus. You, have a, you can have a relationship with the Father because of Jesus. David sums up his point by asking God to lead him in his righteousness, to make the way straight. Don't make it curvy and whiny so I get lost. Just lead me right down it. Make it straight. Get the stones out of the way so I don't trip. That's what, Dave, that's what David's asking the Lord for here. This is where I need to put myself every morning. I can't make myself good. I can't plan the perfect prayer or the perfect Bible reading schedule. I can't make myself holy. I just, I can't do it. I need help. We all need help. Hard thing to say sometimes, for sure. We need God to come near to us, show himself to us, and make us more like Jesus, who is the perfect image of the Father. He doesn't want you to figure it out on your own. He wants you to let him in on the process. He wants to lead you, he wants to father you, and he wants to love you. So let's go to our Father in prayer this morning. Well, Father, we, we thank you for your steadfast love. It's sometimes so grand and so great that we, we really don't no, we can't understand it. We can't fathom it. But Lord, I pray that this morning through the gathering of the communion of the saints and through the worship that we would understand that truth. We would see your love and know it for what it is. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us and your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.